While we talk about the flood, I want to talk about the world that Noah knew. Now remember that before the flood, we don't know what that world was really like. In fact, all we have about that world is found in the first five chapters of the book of Genesis. And uh, that covers about 1,656 years. And so there are lots of information. There is lots of information that's not given to us. Now, to illustrate why uh, we do not, uh, for sure, why we do not know uh, what that world was, for example, you know, we hear the myth of the ancient city of Atlantis. Well, that city might not have been a myth. It might have come from a real story from a city that existed before the flood. The technology that they had, the science that they knew, we lost in the flood. Uh, for another example, uh, in Glenrose, Texas, there's a museum where they found an axe head in uh, South Texas. They uh, dated it uh, about 6,000 years ago, which would have been before the flood. And there is a mixture of chloride and iron ore and other chemicals that modern day metal people would like to understand and know how to do. They can't repeat it. So the point is, we don't know what kind of world that was. All we can do is take what the text tells us because that world that Noah knew when he entered the boat is gone. You know, people talk about uh, historically, uh, you've read stories about how these ancient uh, uh, soldiers and ancient generals searched the world to find the Garden of Eden that they might find that gold. Well, the problem is the Garden of Eden no longer exists. Before the flood, there was a cherubim an angel with a flaming sword guarding the entrance to that garden. But after the flood, it was gone. It exists no more. And so we're going to talk a little bit about the world that Noah knew, the weather that Noah knew, the causes of the Noah's flood, the effects of Noah's flood, and of course Noah's flood and the end of the world. Now, Noah, this story of the flood is interesting for many reasons. First of all, it's only 10 generations from the time that Adam was created. Now, that may appear or seem like a long time. It's, it, it's, it's about 1,656 years. But when you read in Genesis chapter 5, you'll find that uh, many individuals lived to be over 900 years old. In fact, uh, the person we teach our children that was recorded to have lived the longest was Methuselah. So when you consider these uh, genealogies that are found there in the book of Genesis from Adam to Noah, I want you to realize that probably uh, Seth died before Noah, but Enosh, the grandson of Noah, probably was alive whenever Noah was born. And so he had a very close uh, communication with the beginning. And of course, during this period of Bible history, the record was passed down from generation to generation. And Moses is recorded or is given the credit as to, to have brought those records together or to have recorded the book of Genesis as we know it. So it was about 2,000 years after creation that the things we read in the book of Genesis were recorded. So we have to remember that. That's very important. But what's interesting, it's not all that long. We commonly see generations four and five but they saw many more generations than that because of their ancient age, because of their extended age. Now, what you have to also remember is that God created a perfect world. He created a world where there was no sin. He created man with perfect intelligence. On the first day that man was born, or man was created, he wasn't born, he had the ability 
to look at the animals that God caused to come into His presence. In fact, if you study the record, you'll find that the animal-man relationship before the flood was also different, and it changed after the flood. But these animals came into Noah on the first day that he was created. I don't, he was only one day old or six hours old or whatever, but he was created full-grown with full, perfect intelligence. Now, he was not perfect in the sense that God is perfect, omniscient and omnipotent, but he obviously, or omnipotent, but he was uh, obviously a perfect being. God set him in a perfect world. Everything was perfect and ready for his care. And when all of these animals came into him, he not only had the mindset to name those animals, but he had the ability to remember those names because they still wear that name today like cattle and dog and cat and lion and elephant and so forth. We still go by those names today. Adam's the one that named them. So God gave man a perfect intelligence. That's what he did. He gave the world a perfect existence, but man messed it up. It was sin that caused thorns and thistles to grow in the garden. It was sin that caused the universe to begin to die. Up until the time of Adam's sin, there was no death. In fact, no matter which theistic evolutionary idea you try to incorporate into the Bible, it won't work. There are too many contradictions. I could spend an hour talking about the contradictions between any theistic evolutionary idea in the Bible. But the main one is that all of them suggest that before Adam we have sin, death, and suffering. And the Bible says that sin and death and suffering was brought to us by Adam in Romans chapter 5, verse 12. And so that finishes the day-age theory. That finishes the... Uh, a gap theory, that finishes whatever theory you want to talk about. And there are many that people have tried to incorporate into the Bible. There's no way that can be. The Bible contradicts that. You can't believe evolution and believe the Bible. Now, there, is, there are two kinds of evolution. There's macroevolution and there's uh, microevolution. Macroevolution claims that, that an ape can become a man, and that's, that's false. Now, microevolution is within the species or within the kind. There is a vast opportunity or ability to change. That's why it is known today that the Chihuahua and the Great Dane came from the original dog, male and female, that came off the boat. See, there, were only, there was only one dog, one male and one female. And the Great Dane and the Chihuahua have come from that original match that came off the boat. So, don't get mixed up. There is... There is change, or I don't like to use the word evolution, but there is change within kinds. That's why we have black people, and that's why we have white people, and yellow people, and red people. Because within the species, at the beginning of creation, Adam and Eve had the ability to have dark children, have light children, uh, whichever uh, color or skin tonation or, or face uh, uh, feature you want to talk about that was within Adam and Eve to have that capability. And that's how all these different races came. And we don't have time to study about that, but we could. Now, look at this. God made a perfect world. Men corrupted it. He corrupted it with sin. The Bible says, and the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh. Yea, his days shall be 120 years. Now, some people try to say that this is the numbering of the days of man. But this is interesting to me. Because, you know, Moses is the one that wrote Psalms 90. 
Now, all my life, I heard preachers, I've heard preachers get up and quote from Psalm 90 about a man's life being three score and ten, and, and if he's blessed, he'll live to be four, four score. But if you look at the beginning of the text, it says that Moses wrote that. Now, the point is this. If this is a setting of man's age to a lower level, if that's what he's talking about, then there's a contradiction in the Bible. Moses said the average age of a man is 70 years not 120. Now, not only that, Noah lived after this to be over 900. Years later, Jacob went into the Pharaoh of Egypt, later in the text in Genesis, and he was 175 years old, and Pharaoh was astonished at the fact that he looked so young. So again, that blasted the 120-year thing way out of proportion. The point is, in this text, God's not talking about the average age of anybody. He's talking about the end of the world. Now, this is really interesting because uh, Noah would have been 480 years old when this decree was made because we know that he was 600 when he entered the ark and the flood came. So 120 years previous to that would have made him 480. But he did not have his first child until he's 500. Now the point is, Noah went out with the purpose and intent of saving his family. And he saved his world. Now I want you to look at Lot for a minute. I don't think we always understand what's happening in the case of Lot. You remember it says he pitched his tent toward Sodom. You remember that when those men tried to take the angels from Lot's house, or those godly men from Lot's house, they said, you've made yourself a judge over us. You remember that the Bible says he sat at the gate. Now when you read that expression in the Old Testament, that means he was a judge in court. All their courts were held at the gate. Now think about this. The Bible also tells us that he was a righteous man and that he vexed his soul daily with their ungodly deeds. So Lot's a righteous man. Now notice that he's a judge. You know what his intent is? He intends to reform Sodom. Sometimes we get this idea that if we get involved in politics, we can reform the world. He got so involved in trying to reform the world, he lost his family. Now I want you to think about this. He went out to save his, the world. He lost his family and his world. Noah went out to save his family and he saved the whole world. Now think about this. Have you ever wondered why Abraham stopped with ten people? Why did Abraham, you know, remember when God, those men came to Abraham in Genesis the 18th chapter and they told him that Sodom and Gomorrah were going to be destroyed and he said, why Lord, would you destroy the righteous with the wicked? I know you would never do that. Suppose that there are just 50 righteous souls in Sodom and Gomorrah. Would you destroy those places? And God said, no. And he, of course, goes on down, 45 and 40. And finally he gets down to 10 and he stops. Have you ever wondered why? Man, he's, he's, you know, I'm not sure I'd have tried a second time. But Abraham just keeps going and, and he's still winning when he stops at 10. Why does he stop at 10? Have you ever wondered that? Well, over there in Genesis 19, it tells us. Those men were talking to Lot and they said, you go tell your sons-in-laws too. Now that means he had two married daughters. 
If he had sons-in-laws, he had to have married daughters. Those men said, go tell your sons. Had to have at least two. Now we know that Lot had two virgin daughters. And Lot and his wife also make two. Two, four, six, eight, ten. You see why Abraham said that? He knew his nephew. And he thought that he had saved his family. But you see, Lot made the mistake of going out and trying to save society. And he not only lost society, but he lost his family. But Noah, on the other hand, went out to save his family. And as a result of saving his family, he saved his world. Well, so much for that. So in 120 years, God decrees, I'm going to destroy it all. It's going to be finished. The world as we know it is going to end. Every air breather is going to die. They're going to see and feel destruction. It's the end of the world as we know it. Now, we know that sea creatures were not going to die. Uh, any fish were not going to die. They could live through this terrible tragedy. But every air breather was going to suffer death at the hands of Almighty God. The world that no one knew was finished. And clearly it was declared. Even Enoch, the Bible says, according to Jude, preached that the coming of the Lord was upon them. Now let's talk a little bit about the weather. Go back to Genesis chapter 2. Now remember that Genesis 1 is God's divine statement of, of creation. And Genesis chapter 2 is God's divine commentary on what happened in chapter 2. Now he mentions things in chapter 2 that he does not mention in chapter 1 because he's making some application and explaining some things that he did on the first day that he needed to explain further. For example, the family, the the institution of the family is explained clearly in Genesis chapter 2. Now look at this passage. Genesis chapter 2 verses 5 and 6. Before any plant of the field was in the earth, and before any herb of the field had grown, For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth, and there was no man to till the ground. Now notice that when God created the herbs, when He created the grass, when He created the fruit trees, they were all full-grown already. They all had the ability to reproduce. Instantly, God created it. He created it mature. So, obviously, it was new, but it had the appearance of age. It had to, so that it could reproduce after its own kind. So this passage is not saying that there was no grass on the earth. It's telling us that God had not caused it to rain on the earth. Now think about this. Why would he say that? Now, he's probably referring back to the first day of creation. In Genesis chapter 5, on the second day, the Bible says that God parted the waters below from the waters above. And he put a space between the waters above and the waters below. Now again, I don't want you to misunderstand me. I'm not going to debate on this issue because we don't know for sure how the world was then. That world is gone. But to me this makes sense. And so I'm going to share it with you because of what the Bible says. Notice now. No rain and a mist watered the ground. Now think about this. God separated the waters from the waters. And he put a space in between there. The waters from the waters, and he put a space in there. Now, if that, if that is true, if we understand that correctly, he must have put what might be referred to as a water ca- uh, canopy, a vapor water canopy. 
And of course, this would have caused several things uh, during the time of Noah. In fact, it would have had a greenhouse effect. You know, we talk, we hear so much about the warming and we hear so much about the hole in the ozone. Well, we don't know that that doesn't need to be there. Now, we can, people can surmise and hypothesize all they want, but we don't know why it's there. Maybe it's there because we're spraying aerosol. But maybe it's there because God put it there. And maybe that's part of the system that's left over from, from this system before the flood. We just don't know. Notice now, if this was true, there would not have been any rain. If this water canopy circled the earth, it would have caused a greenhouse effect. There would have been no hot desert bakersfields. It had been uniform. There would have been no freezing Antarctica or North Pole. There would have been no ice caps. In fact, you can read in National Geographic, which is an evolutionary magazine, but they can't explain why they found those woolly mammoths in Siberia that's frozen year-round. In fact, those woolly mammoths were frozen so fast that there's grass inside some of their tummies that never digested. Well, that's pretty remarkable. Now, if this were true, if this canopy circled the earth, that would have been a vegetation area. In fact, the whole world would have been a vegetation area. There would have been much more food and much more vegetation for consumption. There would have been no severe winds and so on. In fact, these rays that cause us to age and damage us and cause, uh, <coughs> cause uh, skin cancer, that is, many of them, would have been reflected by the water canopy. And so that could, have even, that could even be a sign as to how or why they lived longer before the flood. Well, the Bible says that everybody's going to die. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7. By faith Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen. You see, God said it not, had not rained. He, he watered the world in a different way before the flood. Noah had not seen it rain, but he believed God and acted by faith. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 6, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. Now, the world changed. After the flood, there was a rainbow. Before the flood, there was no rainbow. After the flood, there were clouds. Before the flood, the Bible does not speak of clouds. So, this probably, or this is one of the solutions possibly that could meet the text. A water vapor canopy circling the earth. Now let's talk a little bit about the causes of the flood. We've talked about the, the world that Noah knew. We've talked about the weather Noah knew. Now we're going to talk about the causes of the flood. If I were to go around the room this, this morning, think to yourself. What would you say caused the flood? Nearly everybody says, why? The rain. Wrong answer. It flooded for 150 days, but the rain only lasted 40 days. Now, the rain contributed. But again, the waters rose for 150 days. The rain stopped after 40 days. See, we, don't, we haven't always studied it like we should have. Let's look at what it says. In the 600 year of Noah's life, in the second month, the 17th day of the month, on that day all the fountains of the great deep were broken up and the windows of heaven were open. So the first thing that happened was the fountains of the great deep were broken up. Now think about this. The crust of the earth was literally torn in two. 
You talk about earthquakes. Water gushed from the surface of the earth into the sky, possibly shooting hundreds of feet into the air as this water gushed out. And the Bible says at the same time, the windows of heaven were opened. It rained. Now, and the rain was on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. It might have even appeared to rain after that, but God says it finished after that. But those fountains of the great deep continued to gush out. And obviously, if they shot hundreds of feet into the air all over the earth, then it would appear like in many places it was still raining. So here you have the ark floating on this water. And of course, the higher the waters would rise, higher the ark would reach. John Whitcomb said, Stupendous upheaval of ocean basins accompanied by the collapse of the pre-flood vapor canopy, that global terrarium that provided an even surface temperature in a rainless world for 1,560 or 56 years precipitated back to the earth from which it had been lifted up on the second day of creation week and joined those rising waters from below. Notice now, the fountains of the great deep were broken up. The floodgates of heaven were open. There were many volcanoes, in fact, probably hundreds of volcanoes. There were earthquakes. There was lightning and thunder. There was static electricity in the air. There was rain. There was freezing rain. There was water gushing from the center of the earth. Now that's the flood. Now there's no way we can really understand what all that means without thinking about it a little bit. So what I want to do is I want to take you back to the island of Krakatoa. Now if you have a computer, all you have to do is type in Krakatoa. There are hundreds of websites about this, about this volcano. It occurred in 1883. It's quite remarkable because after this blast, it frosted on July 4th in Midland, Texas. Now, I don't know if you've ever been in Midland, Texas in July, but you think Bakersfield's hot, you ought to be there. Now, this is what the islands looked like before the flood, I mean before the volcano eruption, and this is what they looked like afterwards. I want to show you where this is at. This is uh, in Indonesia. In fact, before this island blew up, it actually connected Malaysia and Indonesia right here. You can see over here, this is where I live in Zambia. And of course, here's Australia down here in China and Egypt and so forth. It's over here in Indonesia. The volcano is right in here. There's a little bigger picture to show you kind of what it looks like today. Now, on August 26, 1883, Krakatoa began a series of explosions. Now, they were big explosions. In fact, uh, these explosions caused a black cloud to go into the sky for 17 miles. But they were not anything compared to what's going to happen the next day. Now, what happened was about 10 a.m. the next morning, it got very quiet like the calm before storm. And down below the surface of the ocean, these previous explosions the day before had caused a crack in the uh, volcano's uh, uh, crust. And ocean water now this morning was pouring into that uh, volcano. Now this is something that would have happened hundreds of times in the flood. And this is what caused this volcano to be the, be the biggest modern-day explosion that we know about. It is a thousand times bigger than the bombs we dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. You think about that. They just literally, those atomic bombs destroyed those cities. But this explosion was a thousand times bigger than those explosions. 
Ocean water poured into this side vent, directly into the heart of the volcano. And of course, remember, again, I want to emphasize, this is what happened during the flood. Krakatoa literally blew up. A column of rock and fire was hurled into the atmosphere. In fact, it went 50 miles into the stratosphere and remained there for at least two years. Scientists have recorded, did record at that time that the ash and the dirt and the dust circled the earth twice. And it changed temperatures all over the globe. It caused it to snow in July in Indiana. <laughs> now think about that. It's hot in Indiana too in the summertime. But the ash and the dirt reflected the, the sunlight so much just from this one volcano, it actually affected globally the weather. Just one volcano. Now if one volcano can do that, what do you think a thousand volcanoes can do like that? We can have an ice age. You see, that's probably what the Ice Age came from. And that's probably why there was an Ice Age for quite a while after the flood. Because it took time for that ash to get out of the sky. In just a few seconds, this 2,600-foot mountain literally exploded into bits and pieces and went into the air. Now, dirt and ash was to circle the globe two years, graying and cooling globally. The blast was heard 3,000 miles away. That's like somebody sitting in San Francisco hearing a bomb go off in New York. That's incredible. That's the kind of explosion we're talking about. The heavy fall of volcanic ash extended as far away as 900 miles. The tidal flooding occurred as far away as 4,500. If you go and search this out, you'll find that a large ship was lifted up out of the ocean and carried up over this island into the center and dropped. I mean, you can see the pictures of it. It's, it's amazing. The tidal flooding was incredible. Hundreds of people died from the tidal flooding hundreds of miles away from the actual uh, explosion. 13 cubic miles of material was shot into the atmosphere and continued to circle the earth. Now, this is what we're talking about when we're talking about the flood. We're talking about mud and slush and dirt and ash. We're talking about all these things being scattered all over the earth. Explosions. Water gushing out. Water falling from the sky. Layers of dirt being laid down all over the surface of the earth. That's why you can go into uh, Colorado and get up on that tall mountain and find shells. You see? Because water covered the whole earth. These shells came from the ocean. We know that. No creature lives on top of that mountain that comes from the shells you can find in, in the Permian Basin in Midland. You could find seahorses. Well, those are ocean creatures. Where did they come from? They came from the flood. The flood changed the world. Stop and envision, imagine what it must have been like on that boat, that barge with no rudder, no no uh, direction, no no uh, sense of going, just floating and surviving. This is the flood. This is the thing, these are the things that happened during that flood. Now let's talk a little bit about the effects of the flood. Already, I think probably you're thinking about some effects. You know, one thing that comes to my mind is the Grand Canyon. Here you have hundreds of... You can look down at the Grand Canyon. I don't care how many degrees or how many symbols a guy has on his name on the wall. There's no way he'll ever convince me the Colorado River made that canyon. 
Those layers were laid down during the flood. And that's why all evolutionary scientists want to say the flood was a local flood. But the Bible is contradictory to that. If you believe the Bible, you can't believe it's a local flood. Because that's not what it says. In Genesis chapter 7, And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds and cattle and beasts and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, and every man, and in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life, all that was on the dry land died. Now you think about that. God does not mess with sin. We think because we can fool the preacher, or we can fool the brethren, or we can keep knowledge from our mother and dad, or we can keep something from our wives or our husbands, we think we can get by. As long as we don't get caught. I don't understand church leaders that pretend and live double standards, live double lives. I'll never understand that. I guess I'm just naive and ignorant. I don't know, but I don't understand that. God it doesn't mess with us. I'm telling you, he got so fed up with sin, he got so fed up with wickedness, he got so fed up with double standards that he wiped out the world. And I'm telling you, he'll deal with us the same way if we keep sin in our life. Now, he don't want us to be lost. In fact, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. But I'm telling you, you got sin in your life. You're going to pay for it if you keep it there and you die in that sin. All that was on the dry land died. So he destroyed all living things which were on the face of the ground, both man and cattle, creeping thing and bird of the air. They were destroyed from the earth. Only Noah and those who were with him in the ark remained alive. Bodies, animals, all air breathers floating in the water for over a year. Now the flood was on the earth 40 days. The waters increased and lifted up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed. That means the waters continued to rise and greatly increased on the earth. And the ark moved about on the surface of the waters. And the waters prevailed exceedingly on the earth. And all, listen to this, all the high hills under the whole heavens were covered. The waters prevailed 15 cubits upward, about 22 feet, and the mountains were covered. Now, I want, you, I want to ask you this question. What would it take to cause a cataclysmic flood? You know, everybody here probably has driven up the San Joaquin Valley into the Sacramento Valley and saw those Sutter Buttes, haven't you? You think about that. The tallest Sutter Buttes is about 2,900 feet. Suppose that that one high hill was covered with water for a week. Do you think any of us would survive in Bakersfield? No way. In fact, this whole valley would be, would be gone because the, forcing, the crushing force of gravity would demand an equal depth all over the planet, all over the valley. That's all it would take. Just one flood over one hill, 2,900 feet, for one week. Well, we're not talking about a flood over one hill. The Bible says that all the high hills were covered for months. 
to a minimal depth of 22 feet. The higher men climbed, the higher the water rose. Now that's frightening. Because this is the God we're talking about. Now He's merciful and He loves us. But He is not going to tolerate sin. The same one that gave His Son to die upon the cross has left us the symbol of the flood to remind us that punishment is coming to those who reject His word. Jesus said, He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my words hath one that judgeth him. The words that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. John chapter 12, verse 48. We're talking about the effects of the flood. In Genesis chapter 8, the Bible says, Then God remembered Noah. Now that doesn't mean that God had forgotten Noah. That word remember remembered in the Hebrew, simply means that he now has finished his task of destroying the earth and now he's turning his attention. He's been with them all along, but now he's turning his attention to Noah and getting rid of the floodwaters so that Noah and his family can leave the ark. So then God remembered Noah and every living thing and all animals that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind to pass over the earth, and the waters subsided. But now obviously waters weren't enough. Look at this. The fountains of the deep and the windows of heaven were also stopped, and the rain from heaven was restrained, and the waters receded continually from the earth. At the end of the 150 days, the waters decreased. Now here's a passage, a divine commentary on what he's talking about in Genesis. This tells us what happened, how God really got rid of the water. Now certainly, He caused the wind to blow, and that helped. But notice what it says. Psalm 104, verses 5 through 10. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. He established the earth upon its foundations, so that it will not totter forever and ever. Talking about the creation. Verse 6, talking about the flood. You covered it with the deep, that is the ocean, as with a garment. The waters were standing above the mountains. Now look at this. At your rebuke they fled. At the sound of your thunder they hurried away. How did they do that? Look at what he says. The mountains rose. The valleys sank down to the place which you established for them. You see, during the process of the earth's crust breaking, mountains began to rise. And at the conclusion of the flood, God caused the mountains to rise high and He caused the valleys to sink down. Did you know that near the Philippine Islands there's a trench in the ocean and it's seven miles deep? In fact, it's so deep that we don't have the technology really to go down in there. We're not for sure what's in there. It's too deep. The pressures are too high. You see, God caused that trench to take away the flood. Now you think about it. The Rocky Mountains rose up. The ocean basin near the Philippines sunk down. Here all this water and this sludge and this mud and these layers and layers of sand and dirt and ash and dust rushed down the, from the Colorado River, from the Arizona Grand Canyon Basin. And in a matter of a few weeks, at the most a few months, the Grand Canyon forms. That's God's doing. You see, the world we live in now is not God's creation. Now we look at the Grand Canyon and we think what a marvelous, what a marvelous piece of, of, of the globe we are able to enjoy. I'm going to tell you something, that's part of the curse. You think part of the curse is beautiful. What, what, what do you think His creation was? We don't know. We don't know because the world we live in is cursed. 
It's been changed. Because of sin. The mountains rose, the valleys sunk down to the place which you established for them. Yet you set a boundary that they may not pass over so that they will not return to cover the earth. So he promised, you remember, Abraham, or Noah, that he would not destroy the earth again with water. The world that then was perished. The mountains grew higher. The valleys sunk deeper. The ecologic system was changed. Changed forever. You know what's interesting? The whole Bible looks to the flood. Hundreds of passages. These are just a few. Over a hundred times. Every writer, as far as I know, looks back to the flood in some way. Maybe in figure or in point. Whatever. Over and over again you read about the flood and its significance. You can't underestimate the power of God in the flood. And I want to tell you something. When you think about the flood, it's a terrifying thing. It helps us to understand, yes, God loves us. Yes, Noah was extended grace. But God's side is, is, is full of grace, and at the same time, it's full of terror. That's why Paul said, Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body, whether he done good or bad. Now you may forget your problems, but the Lord don't forget them. And someday, we're all going to give account. And pretending doesn't help. Because the only one that's deceived then is us, me. When I pretend, it's me that's deceived. Now Terry may never know. He may die. He may go to his deathbed thinking of whatever he thinks of me. Good or bad. Because he really don't know. But God knows. And I answer to him and so do you. Well, Noah's flood truly does point to the end of the world. Peter says... But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, which of uh, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Now look at what he says. Nevertheless, nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Now today, I don't know the minds of those who are present in this assembly. But I know this. The flood is for sure. And this reminds us that God's coming back. And His Son is going to be the judge. For He tells us in Acts 17 that He's appointed His Son to be the judge. And all of us are going to be there. Every person from Adam to the last breather that is living when He comes. The Bible says we'll be changed. Those who are alive will be changed into their immortal bodies. Those who have died will be resurrected. And they'll come forth from their graves in their, with their new bodies. And Jesus says that on that day it'll be like a shepherd divides, divides sheep from goats. You know, we have this idea that we can get in judgment and we can get us a lawyer, find some loophole. But I'm going to tell you something. Judgment day is not 
trial day. Trials right now. We're on trial right now. And the life that you live when you take your last breath is the end of the trial. How long does it take to tell this is a goat or this is a sheep? That's the way it'll be on that day. He's going to separate the goats from the sheep. Those sheep, he's going to say, come unto me. Come unto me. He says, you've been faithful over a few things. I will make you rule over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. Are you ready? That's the question. Are you ready today? Because when that flood comes, it's going to be too late. That flood will not be with water. It will be with fire. Paul says that when Jesus appears, there will be a shout. There will be a trumpet blow. We'll hear the voice of the archangel and we shall meet him in the air. Are you ready? Jesus said, come unto me, all ye that labor. Whatever it is in your life, the Lord wants you to be saved. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.